evidence and answers. Russia has been in the news a lot lately. Muscle flexing has been prevalent. What does this tell us about dealings in the Middle East? And what do we know of Russia in biblical prophecy? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today in our broadcast, Pat and his special guest, pastor and author, Mark Hitchcock, discuss Russia and its role in biblical prophecy. If you are unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now here's our host, Dr. Pat Zukran, along with Dr. Mark Hitchcock, with part two in the conclusion to Russia rising. The chapters after Ezekiel 38 and 39, Ezekiel 40 to 48, describes the, the rebuilding of a future temple, I believe, during the, during the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Jesus. And there's never been a temple like the one described in Ezekiel 40 to 48 either. So I see yeah. that as future, even after that battle. So this battle, Ezekiel 38 and 39, is placed right before this time of great messianic blessing and the rebuilding of a temple and all those kinds of things in Ezekiel 40 to 48 that haven't happened either. So yeah. I think when we, you, know, you put all those things together, you say, look, this has to be an event that's going to happen sometime still in, in the future. Yeah, and it talks about a great spiritual revival and a turning back to the Lord of the Jewish people, which you yes. know something we haven't seen either. You know, right. getting to the vision of the temple, talk about that briefly. We get a lot of criticism on that because it talks about the sacrificial system being there at the temp, you know, being performed at the temple again, you know, I think in chapter 46 and other places. And, you know, many critics will say, well, how could God reinstate the sacrificial system during the millennial kingdom? You know, the greatest sacrifices already been done and that's, that system is over. So right. obviously there's a flaw in interpreting that as a future temple here. How do you address that? Well, one way I would address it is, is I would admit, look, this is a difficult problem. It's a difficult issue. I mean, I think we always want to admit those kinds of things. But what I always challenge the people who criticize my view of Ezekiel 40 to 48 is I challenge them to give me their interpretation of it. (laughs) This is nine chapters of detailed information that I've never heard anyone who doesn't take it literally and take it as future. I've never heard anyone really come up with a a good exposition of going through all nine of those chapters and explaining what it means. So that's one of the first things I always say when people criticize my view about something, I always ask them what their view is. Because a lot of times, you know, they don't even have a view. They just don't like our view. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I always say, well, I like my view better than your non-view. So at least I'm trying, you know, to understand it. And I think there's something to be said for that. It is a difficult problem when we look at this future temple in Ezekiel 40 to 48 and sacrifices being offered there. Look, no one is saying in any way, no one, no believer will ever say that any kind of sacrifices that are offered in the future in the millennial kingdom in any way take the place or augment or supplement the, the finished work of Jesus. What Jesus did was the once-for-all sacrifice for sin forever. But, you know, in the Old Testament times, these sacrifices were offered, and it says, you know, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And uh, the same thing will be true in the future. It won't be those sacrifices that take away sin, but they will point back to that one sacrifice of Jesus. There's a thought out there by some really good Bibles teachers that I've read 
that what the purpose of these sacrifices in the millennial kingdom will be for ritual cleansing. Because you think about the, many, the people, there will be people living in the millennium in their human bodies. Uh, we'll, we'll be in glorified bodies. They're ruling and reigning. But there will be people living on the earth in their natural mortal bodies. And they'll still be sinful people. And that as they come to this temple to worship God and to worship the Lord Jesus, the Messiah there, that they'll go through these sacrifices as part of ritual cleansing for them to be able then to go in and, and to worship him. And so many have made that connection. It's kind of a longer discussion to get into than we have time here. But that's one of the explanations for what's going on there. And again, they'll still be obviously pointing back to that one sacrifice that Jesus made. But It'll just be a reminder to them of their sinfulness and that they have to be cleansed in order to go into uh, the presence of, of God, into the, his holy presence. So that's one of the thoughts uh, that, that's there on that, and I, I find that pretty convincing. Getting back to the Battle of Gog and Magog, when does this take place? Because it talks about, you know, burning the debris and it takes seven years and all of that. So when does this battle take place? Well, Bible teachers who believe this is future, like I do and like you do, have placed it at about every point in the future. Some will say this is going to happen, could happen any time, even before the rapture. Um, others will say, no, this is going to happen at the, around the middle of the tribulation period, the coming seven-year tribulation. Others will say that this is the same as the Battle of Armageddon. Um, it's at the end of the tribulation, so this is the kind of the final battle uh, as Jesus is coming back. And a lot of people make that parallel because in Ezekiel 39, it does mention the birds and the, the beasts, you know, coming and feeding on the bodies that are there on the carnage, kind of a grisly scene. But you have that same thing in Revelation 19. So they'll say, look, this is the, the same as Armageddon. Uh, my view is I put this in uh, the, the first half of the tribulation period is where I put it, because one of the key chronological indicators in this chapter. One of them is the Jewish people have to be regathered to their land. Obviously, they can't be invaded if they're, if they're not there. So they have to be regathered. Uh, they have to be restored to their land and be prospering in their land. But another key indicator that, that's mentioned here a few times, it says in like Ezekiel 38, verse 8, that the Jewish people will be living securely in their land. Uh, down in verse 11, it says they'll be living securely. It says they'll be at rest. So whenever this happens, Israel has to be at rest and living securely. Now, to me, that kind of knocks out the idea that this is at the end of the tribulation. You know, it's the Battle of Armageddon. Because if there's one time we know when the Jewish people won't be at rest and living securely, it'll be the end of that seven years of tribulation. Mm -hmm. there, there's only two times in the future, I think, in the Bible where it tells us that the Jewish people will be at rest in that land. One of them is during the, the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Remember, they'll be living under that guarantee of peace by the Antichrist. He's going to make a, a seven-year treaty with them. The other time is during the millennial kingdom when Jesus comes back and rules and reigns on the earth. Well, it won't be during the millennium, I don't think, because that's going to be a time of peace. So I think we're left with that first half of the tribulation when the Antichrist has made this seven-year some type of, of peace treaty with Israel when they're going to let their guard down and be living at rest and securely. So that's my understanding of it. Sometime after the rapture takes place, the, the, the church is caught away, uh, Antichrist will come, make this, this treaty and guarantee some kind of peace for Israel. During that first three-and-a-half-year period, this Russian Islamic coalition will come down into the land of Israel, kind of a surprise attack. And, of course, if Israel and the Antichrist have this, this peace agreement, an attack on Israel will also be an attack against the Antichrist. So I think it will be Russia and these Islamic nations also 
kind of, uh, you know, challenging this king of the West, if you will, this Western king, the leader of the West, the Antichrist. Of course, their armies come into the land of Israel. They get wiped out there, and uh, that creates a great power vacuum in the world, I think, and kind of allows the Antichrist at that time then to begin to really start to kind of cement his world empire at that time. To me, that's a good explanation for how it is at the, the middle of the tribulation that the Antichrist is able to gain such power. You think if the Russian and all these Islamic nations have their armies wiped out in Israel, it'll leave a really big power vacuum. So to me, putting it there in the first half of the tribulation kind of fits with a lot of other pieces of the prophetic puzzle to kind of put that together. But I always have to say about this, I, I think I understand pretty clearly the other aspects of this of this prophecy, but since they're really good prophetic Bible teachers who disagree with me on the timing of it, I think that's something that we don't want to be, you know, really dogmatic about. Yeah, you know, what keeps the Russian Islamic alliance from overrunning Israel now is, you know, the United States that kind right. of shields Israel. I mean, ultimately God, but you know, uh, God is using the U.S. to protect Israel. Well, where is the United States at this time in relation to Israel? What happened to them? What happened to us? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a good issue of, you know, to me, you know, America is not mentioned in Bible prophecy, I don't think. Some people think America, you know, they find America some different places in the Bible, but I think America is not mentioned. And I think the silence about America is interesting because, you know, right now we are the greatest, most powerful nation in the world. If we were a key player, you think we'd be mentioned somewhere. Uh, somehow, you know, some great, you know, nation from across the seas or whatever somehow would be referenced. So I think that's an indication to me that America is not the great power anymore. And people say, well, then what's going to happen to America? Well, there's a lot of plausible scenarios, you know, some EMP attack, you know, some nuclear weapon that, you know, puts us in the dark or whatever, you know, we're off the grid or uh, some type of nuclear terrorism in our country or just the, the debt bomb, you know, continuing to, to build and going off. We don't have the money to, you know, have a military anymore. It could be the rapture. That's kind of my view, is that the rapture of the church will decimate this country. You, know, you take about 8 to 10 percent of the people that I, it seems like, you know, from the best statistics are true believers. That's 30, over 30 million people. You know, the salt and the light taken out in a, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And that could reduce us to a second-rate, third-rate nation overnight. I mean, you talk about, you know, the Dow Jones dropping the next day mm -hmm. and, you know, mortgages not paid and all these kinds of things. So I mean, if America's kind of sidelined for a while or at least greatly weakened and you have this great, you know, some great Western leader, you know, arise somewhere, you know, we could be part of an alliance maybe like that. And, you know, and then that person makes this treaty with Israel guaranteeing their peace. So, you know, we, we always have to be careful about speculating because we don't know for sure about these things. But what we can say is that there's going to be a lot of twists and turns, you know, that will take place. But I think the rapture is going to do a lot uh, towards sorting a lot of these things out. You know, it's going to be the the greatest event in world history since the flood. Yeah. And uh, you talk about a, a shakeup in the world. and a, you know, I mean, it, a lot of things will get explained, I think, in the wake of the rapture. Yeah, and, you know, I like that view because with the U.S. taken out, then Israel's, you know, shield pretty much is gone, and these alliances will say, ah, now here's the time to do what we've always wanted, you know, push Israel yeah, into the sea. Right. So that yep. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. And, we, you know, again, we, you know, I think it's okay to speculate about what, how things might happen as long as people know that we're speculating. You know, there, there's what the Bible says. You know, that's, that's the plumb line. We know what the Bible says. But then we say, okay, well, if this is what the Bible says, how could that come about? And we can look in our world today and say, okay, here's some, again, I used this idea earlier, but plausible scenarios, you know, of how, of how these things could play out. And, again, time will tell. 
um, how it's going to take place. But from the Bible, there's certain things we do know will happen. We know that Russia and Iran and these Islamic nations will rise and attack Israel. Uh, we know it's going to be in the future. It's going to be during the latter years of Israel. You know, there's certain things like that we know uh, for sure, I believe, from, from the Bible. Now, you know, a lot of people bring up the Isaiah 17 prophecy with me. Speaking of Damascus, it says, mm -hmm. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. So it prophesies the destruction of Damascus. Does the war in Syria and all that's going on have any implications on this prophecy? Well, I don't take it that way. A lot of my friends do. A lot of Bible teachers, a lot of prophecy teachers take Isaiah 17 as being future. I take that as having already happened. I take it that was back during the Assyrian invasion back in 734, 732 B.C. in that area. Because if you go on down and read in Isaiah 17, which a lot of people don't do, mm -hmm. uh, you go on down there, it talks about northern Israel being destroyed at the same time. And that's what happened when the Assyrians came in. When it, when it says there that, that Damascus will cease from being a city, it doesn't say it will cease from being a city forever. And uh, Damascus was destroyed back then by the Assyrians. And when I read Isaiah 17, that seems to me like a, a past fulfillment. Again, you know, we're, uh, you know, you say, someone might say, well, wait a minute, I thought you said Ezekiel 38 and 39 is future. Well, it is, because it says that's in the latter years, it's in the last days. Nothing like that's ever happened before. But if you read Isaiah 17, you can fit all of what's in Isaiah 17 back into the Assyrian invasion. And let me just say this kind of for the, for the listeners and, and something that, that I think about as well. I think one of the most difficult issues in Bible prophecy is in, is in some of these Old Testament prophecies, figuring out what part of those prophecies or which ones of them have been fulfilled and which ones haven't been fulfilled. That's not always easy. So again, a lot of people believe that that is still future, and that's possible. That's certainly a possible view, but that's one of the ones that I take as having already happened in the past. Yeah, you bring up a good point, because, you know, in the Old Testament, it talks about the past, and then it goes right into talking about something about the future, the very next yes. sentence, that, you know, there's no gap. It doesn't say, now, a thousand years later, you know, right. like Daniel, unto us a child is born, a son, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, you know. Right. Well, that hasn't happened yet, but it you know, a child has been born, you know, and then the very next sentence says the government will be upon his shoulders. and all. Well, that hasn't happened yet. So, yeah, the Old yeah. Testament prophets didn't see this, this current age, really. You know, they saw this coming of the Messiah. You know, it's kind of like the mountain peaks of prophecy. You know, you've seen the old picture, you know, where you have the mountain peaks, and then mm. you get over to the side and you see the valley in between. Yeah. And uh, we're kind of yeah. in this church age in the valley. So they didn't see... You know, all they didn't see the church age. It, what we live in today it was a mystery. Ephesians three tells us. So you're right. I mean, I call it. A, there, there are passages like that in the Bible. There's one in Zechariah nine. There's one in Malachi three. The one you mentioned, Isaiah nine. There, it's called a prophetic skip, is what I call it. You know, where you're reading and then you kind of go from from really Jesus' first coming to the time when he's going to come back and set up his kingdom and reign. And this current intervening age is overlooked because they just didn't see it in the in, in Old Testament times. On page 20 of your book here, at the end times, you talk about the world being divided into four power blocks. kind of mentioned that briefly. Tell us in a little bit more detail about the four power blocks that the world will be divided into at the end times. There's a few statements in the Bible, different kings that are mentioned. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, uh, we have someone referred to there as the king of the north, and then we have the king of the south. Over in Revelation chapter 16, 
we have the kings of the east. It's plural there, the kings of the east. They come from east of the Euphrates River. Then you have this final leader, the Antichrist, who seems to rise from a reunited Roman Empire. Now, he's never called the king of the west, but he, he is from the west. So, you know, there's a king of the north, a king of the south, the kings of the east, the, this western king. And, of course, all of those uh, directions, the north, south, east, west, are all from Israel, because Israel is the navel of the earth. You know, for God, it's the center of everything. And so everything is kind of measured from there, or the, the uh, directions are given from there. The king of the north, I believe, is uh, what we just, we've talked about here earlier. It's just Russia and some of these nations to the north of Israel. The king of the south seems to be kind of a North African coalition of Islamic nations. The kings of the east, we really don't know who they are. They're from east of the Euphrates. You know, many people believe that that's, that's China with the, the large army they have. It certainly probably includes them, but it can include, can, can include you know, Afghanistan and India and North Korea, China, or, or uh, Japan, a lot of nations. And the, the Western Confederacy seems to, you know, encompass, you know, the old Roman Empire, and certainly the U.S. could be part of that, you know, kind of what's left of the United States after the rapture could certainly be part of that. So you kind of have these main power blocks. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us about every country. It doesn't tell us about Uruguay or Costa Rica or every nation. So, uh, you know, it doesn't tell us where everyone, every nation is, but it, but it seems like these are kind of four main power blocks that are mentioned that, that really have an effect on what's going on in Israel in the end times. But ultimately, you know, at, at the campaign of Armageddon, which is the final great war of the end times. I put, again, the Ezekiel 38-39 we're talking about with Rosh and, and Meshach and Russia and these Islamic nations. I put that in the first half of the tribulation. That's kind of the, what I call the first great war of the end times. And then the second great war, the final war, is Armageddon. I mean, Armageddon, it tells us that all the nations of the earth are going to be gathered there. So, you know, it's going to be what's left of, the, of these nations are going to be gathered there for that final great conflagration. Yes, Mark. Now, you know, with the race for nuclear weapons we're seeing there in North Korea, Iran trying to get nuclear weapons and other nations trying to get a hold of nuclear power, does the Bible predict a nuclear war at the end of the age? Well, I don't think that the Bible does specifically. A lot of people see that. They'll go to passages like uh, Zechariah 14. You know, it talks about people kind of like their tongues, you know, rotten in their mouth and their flesh kind of rotting off. I mean, it's a, you know, a very graphic picture. People will go to uh, Revelation chapter 8, the trumpet judgments there. It talks about a, a great star that falls from the heavens, you know, that comes down and hits in the waters and pollutes the waters. Uh, you know, there's wormwood is mentioned there. And of course, some people have said, you know, in Russian, you know, that's the name for Chernobyl, you know, which was this nuclear facility there. So, you know, when you do read it, when you read Revelation 8, there's a lot of things in that chapter that could fit with a nuclear explosion. But my view is that what's being talked about there in the trumpet judgments in, in Revelation 8 are divine judgments by God himself. These aren't, you know, natural things like, you know, global warming or nuclear weapons mm. or things like that. So personally, I don't see nuclear war described in the Bible. Some do. Again, Zechariah 14, uh, Revelation 8. But just because it's not specifically set forth in the Bible doesn't mean it won't happen. And, you know, there's a lot of things that happen that the Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible doesn't tell us everything in the future that will occur. So there could be. I just don't see it myself as being being clearly laid out in the Bible. But again, it'd be good for the listeners to go read, you know, Zechariah 14 and read Revelation chapter 8 and some of those places and do some study on that. And they can make up their own mind on what they think that's talking about. Well, great. You know, you've also a lot of 
great insight as to end times prophecy. So as we bring this show to a close, we could talk for another more couple hours, I'm sure. <laughs> but, you know, what implications does it have for us now as the Church of Christ here upon the earth, knowing all this information? Well, I mean, one thing it should do is give us comfort, because God's mm-hmm. told us these things ahead of time, and we see them happening. So... You know, we can have confidence that God has everything under control because, again, you know, 2,500 years ago, God was saying, look, in the latter years and the last days, the Jewish people are going to come back to their land. They're going to be regathered there. And, you know, the Jewish people were scattered to 70 countries after the destruction of their temple in A.D. 70 for 2,000 years. And they were brought back to their land. I mean, it's called the miracle on the Mediterranean, and they keep coming there. So Bible prophecy, that prophecy at least, is being fulfilled before our eyes. And we know if that one's being fulfilled, really against all odds, that these other ones will be as well. So one of the things Bible prophecy should do is just give us hope and give us comfort that God is in control. Because, you know, we live in a world where there's a series of cascading crises, and I think it's going to continue and probably even get worse. And if there's one thing that we need, it's hope. And we need to believe and we need to know that there's someone who's marked out the future, who's mapped out the future, who knows where it's going, and who's in control of it. And so... That's one of my favorite reasons to study Bible prophecy. There, nothing shows us the sovereignty of God like prophecy. And, and I think the other thing is, as we look at our world and see things shaping up, and you know, it's kind of like the, the signs of the times are kind of like runway lights that are lighting up uh, you know, as, as the coming of Jesus is approaching. And it ought to give us a sense of urgency in our lives that Christ could come back in any moment. And if there's things in our lives that we need to stop doing, we need to purify our hearts and our lives, then... We need to be urgent about making that happen. If there's people we need to share Christ with, we need to do that. And so I think just, you know, what we see happening should get all of us this sense that we wake up every day and say, you know, perhaps today's the day Jesus could come back. We need to live in light of that. Yeah, you know, I was uh, teaching a class on Revelation, and, you know, a lady took the class whose son had died in the Iraq War and her husband had died of cancer earlier. She was just so depressed about that, but also what was going on in the world, you know, and everything and our elections and what's going on. And she was just getting real depressed. And she took the Revelation class and she said, man, she said she was, you know, the point that you made, she was really encouraged to know that God is in control and things that are taking place actually set the stage, you know, for what will occur in the end times is not catching God by surprise, but falling right into his plan, actually. No, that's right. There's a lot of mystery to this life. There are a lot of things we don't understand, you know, the suffering in the world. I mean, you know, you're an apologetics uh, expert and all that. You know, there, there's a lot of mystery and a lot of things in this world, but we, God has given us enough here for us to know that he exists, that he's real, that he's powerful, uh, that he's in control. And the things that we don't understand, we just have to leave with him. But, boy, I mean, looking at, you know, there's 500 prophecies in the Bible that have already been fulfilled. You know, not to mention what we see with Israel and those things, but 500 prophecies have been fulfilled in the Bible. That's quite a track record. Yeah. And so we know that these future ones will be fulfilled as well. You know, to me, it just gives me hope every day to know that in this world that sometimes you wonder if anybody's uh, in control, we know that God's at the wheel and taking history where he wants it to go and we can be a part of that and you know by putting our faith and trust in him and that's the most important thing for everybody who's listening it's one thing to know where this world is headed but it's much more important that you know where you're headed yeah and uh, you can know where you're headed by by placing your trust and your hope in Jesus and him alone to be your savior he's our only hope fantastic mark if people want more information on you and the things that you have written and things about eschatology where can they go 
Well, I can just get online, put my name, you know, put my name in on Google or some other search, whatever it is. And a lot of the books I have will come up there. A lot of books are on Amazon and mm-hmm. Barnes and Noble and those places. I have a website, uh, marklhitchcock.com, that they can go to. Also, I'm the pastor at Faith Bible Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. So I've spoken on prophecy some here, did the book of Revelation a few years ago. So anyway, you know, they can get online and listen to some of those things. So those are some some ways they can, can get in contact with us. Fantastic. You've been listening to our interview with Mark Hitchcock, a leading Bible prophecy expert, prolific author of over 20 books on the end time, senior pastor at Faith Bible Church and a adjunct faculty member at a great seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary. So fantastic book he's written here that we featured, Russia Rising. So not only this book, but any other book on the end times written by Mark Hitchcock is something you'll want to get. So Mark, thanks for being a guest here on Evidence and Answers once again. Always great to be with you. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Once again, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you would like Pat to speak at your church or Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, please call 808-483-0586 or contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. To keep this broadcast on the air, you have the opportunity to donate. Head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You may do so right there online on the homepage. We have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles, additional audio for you to listen to or download, as well as Pat's books. So be sure to share our website with your family, your friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ, right here on Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers.